Hello, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to this special Read All About It podcast series, The 12 Days of Bookless. Do you see what I did there? And here's what you can look forward to. 12 days, 12 guests and a whole host of great book recommendations as each guest chooses their favourite fiction and non-fiction read of 2020. Well, I also choose a book I've enjoyed reading this year. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about this special Read All About It podcast series. Hello and welcome to the 12 Days of Bootmas, the special podcast brought to you by Read All About It podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Martin Gregg, a publisher. Martin, thanks for coming back on Read All About It podcast for the 12 Days of Bootmas. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again, Paul. Now, obviously, over the course of any year, you and I are quite often sending messages with book recommendations. So I was quite keen to, to find out what your, your favourite fiction and non-fiction reads of the year. But how have you found, obviously, this year has been quite a strange year in terms of the type of reading that you've done or, or, or even been able to read? Because I know I've spoke to a few people that found it, certainly at first, quite difficult to focus and concentrate on, on a book. Yeah, well, I was just saying that before we started recording, Paul. It's been a strange, strange year. Um, we actually had our second child in March. Uh, just before lockdown so it's been all hands to the pump for the last eight or nine months and uh, it's not really been it's not been conducive to finding much time to do much creative reading or writing so i actually found myself rereading quite a lot of stuff because i think it it was i found it less taxing on the on the brain after a long hard day read some poetry as well i was reading some shane lucini and some lauren mccaig and just like kind of shorter form stuff that i could digest before i collapse with exhaustion at the end of a, another long hard day of lockdowns so yeah I would say actually I've read probably much less this year but certainly with my choices today uh, are a couple of books that I have managed to get through this year and, and I wanted to do that because I thought well it would be nice to reflect on books that have been published this year and, and I can give my um, kind of fresh fresher reaction to them. Well the, the first book that you've chosen, which is the non-fiction book, and I mean, I was delighted when you when you said you'd chosen this one. It's a book called Everything Passes, Everything Remains by Chris Dolan. The subtitle is Freewheeling Through Spain, Song and Memory. And Chris has been a regular guest in the in the podcast, and I've read the book as well. I think it's it's a wonderful book, and I know you've just read it. And, and what was it that stood out for you from Chris's book? I obviously we we talked about it a bit on on the last podcast because. Uh, the book that I was reading uh, back then was Cider with Rosie. And I was talking about going on to read As I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning. And then, obviously, you mentioned that Chris had this book coming out, which was kind of mirroring Laurie Lee's journey across Spain, but Chris was going to do it on, on bike rather than on, on foot. So I, I did read Laurie Lee, and then Chris's book came out not actually that long ago, I think probably about two or three weeks ago. So so I only finished it, reading it last night. I think I texted you the other day just saying that I, I really wanted to, to talk about it because I found it really compelling uh, on, on several different levels, actually. Relating to the last time we spoke, Paul, um, you might remember that I, I was uh, merrily quoting Amazon reviews at you, uh, which is a, a great pastime of mine. And So last night I had another uh, look on um, Amazon to, to see what people were saying about Chris's book. And I actually found a really interesting review from a guy called Liam Kane, who funnily enough is a character in the book. He's one of the, the two friends that Chris travels with on his, his journey across Spain. So if you don't mind, I'll maybe I'll maybe read out what Liam says about the book and then 
I think it will give the listener a, an idea of, of the scope of it. So this is Liam Kane on Amazon. He says, I'm biased, I admit. The author's a good friend, and I was with him on his cycle across Spain. But this is a belter of a book. Chris Dolan could write about the corner of a carpet and make it sound enchanting. Let him loose on his beloved Spain, music, memories, cycling with pals, and he'll whirl you along with his sheer enthusiasm for life. It's a hard book to define. As it meanders around an impressive range of themes, it's both serious and funny, light-hearted and intellectual, informative and imaginative. It reflects on old versus new Spain, the legacy of the Civil War, the issue of the Catalan independence and its relevance to Scotland. It's an evocative travelogue of a journey across a country. Though I cycled on the same journey from Vigo to Valencia with Chris, while reading the book, I was constantly amazed at how much more he had seen than I had. He has inspired me to pay a lot more attention in the future. And herein, I believe, lies one of the great strengths of the book. I think Chris Dolan has invented a new way to write about cycling, or at least cycle touring. The cycle is no longer just about the physics, the routes, miles covered, meters climbed, places to see, sights to see, and so on. The physical route of the cycle stimulates a parallel and complementary route through the histories, cultures, sociologies, and philosophies of the area's cycle, brought to life and embellished by the testimonies of people encountered on the way. So I thought that was actually a, an excellent piece of writing by Liam, and it covered a lot of the main themes of the book. I think I probably anticipated before I read the book, I thought it would maybe be more of a kind of straight travel world, but it's different. Um, it's There's a lot in this book. Like Liam says here, it's a hard book to define, and it is. It shifts gear quite a lot, maybe rather appropriately for a, for a cycling book. You know, there are a lot of gear shifts in this book. I wouldn't say it's demanding on the reader, but you can't just skim through this book. You, you can't rattle through it. You've got to really give it proper attention because he's put so much into this. And he's brought so much to it. I think because Chris obviously speaks Spanish and he has a very kind of deep understanding of the history and culture of Spain. You learn so much, but you also learn a lot geographically, I think, which was interesting to me because I think as a, as a Brit, we are conditioned to these, think about Spain and, and these kind of touristy hotspots around the coast. And, and most of us have been to these cities and resorts and places like that. And this um, strip across the middle that he cycles across takes you to places that you know you just that I wasn't aware of. To give one example, they talk about a city called Cuenca, uh, which is a, a mountain city with a famous historic walled town. And I think one of Chris's friends says, you know, this, is, this has got to be the most beautiful city in Spain. I can't be honest, Paul, I'd never heard of Cuenca. And I actually asked, asked my wife last night because my wife in a previous life, she used to uh, work for trail finders and she was paid to travel basically. And I said, have you ever heard of Cuenca? And she hadn't heard of it either. So there was lots of these little gems along the way that actually you come away with a much, much more profound understanding of, of the country in all its facets. When I read this book, I was obviously biased because you know Chris is a friend and what, what excited me about the book is I remember sitting having a cup of coffee with him about six to eight months before he was doing this journey and he was just talking about this is what they were planning to do and know what, why he was doing it. And he'd obviously back in the 70s had, as a young man, him and his friend had tried to recreate Laurie Lee's trip across Spain, busking their way across Spain. It hadn't ended well for him in the end. He'd had to basically get repatriated home with the help of his older brother. So it was partly him trying to almost look back at himself and you know, it was, it was exciting to see what he was telling me about come to fruition in the book. But I also think the age he is now, it's very much a book that, 
you know, if he'd done that trip at the time or even 20 years later, it would be a different book because I think there's a real between him and his two friends who are all out of friends from university. They've been friends for a long time. They're kind of in their 60s now. So that's kind of reflection on, I suppose, the last third of their life. But thinking back to the losses that they've suffered, some recent, some not so recent. And I think that's quite moving in it as well. The fact that, as you say, you feel you're on the journey with them, but it's also it's giving you a wee insight to them as people. And it also just kind of makes you think yourself of, I don't know if baggage is the right word that you would say that you carry with you, but the, the people that, you, that are still with you, you know, in your memory, even if they're not actually physically with you anymore. I think memory is a big theme in the book and I'm more and more interested in this idea of memory and I think you now understand that memories are far, far from objective realities and I think the older the older I get, you know, I, I realise that. I mean, I'm, I'm probably 20 years younger than, than, than Chris but I find this process already as I'm looking back on things that I did 20 years ago and I remember them slightly differently and you know, it's to do with the stories we tell ourselves and this narrative that we build up around our life. And I think that's really interesting because he's got this, um, these previous experiences of going to that country and, and meeting people and, and living a different kind of life and trying to put them together. And I think the book is a bit like that in some ways. It's like a jigsaw puzzle that he's kind of putting together these different parts of his life and trying to make a, maybe a bit more sense of them. It's interesting you mentioned the fact that your knowledge of Spain is, to a large extent, sort of a tourist knowledge. Because yeah. towards the end of the book, once the, the actual cycle journey is finished and these two friends go home, Chris then continues uh, another part of the trip and then goes and, and he's writing the book. And I think it ends up, he spends a bit of time in this wee village writing the book. But it's very much a contrast between the, the people who live there and the expats who live nearby. It's almost, there's, there's one point where there's a, it's almost like a, I don't, think, I don't know if it's quite a town football game. There's this game that basically the whole town, the, the street in the town is the, the pitch, as it were. You know, the ball comes bouncing off the, the houses. It, it sounds spectacular, but at the same time, there's a karaoke going on with the British expats and, you th- and, and who have physically got their backs to this extraordinary event. And I think he's the only non-Spanish person that's actually standing watching this. And I suppose yeah. probably we're all guilty of that to an extent sometimes when we go abroad. It's interesting that I wrote down a great line where he describes Benidorm and he's, he's looking down in Benidorm from the road uh, above it and he says it's a massive mishmash of high-rises and amusement centres. From the road above, it looks like the contents of a gardening rubble sack, which I thought was a brilliant image of this kind of concrete jungle. But I actually like the way he deals with that because he, he, he does deal with this the birth of major tourism to Spain and uh, from Britain in the 60s and stuff like that. But he, he does it very kind of non-judgmentally. You know, I think, you know, the fact that people from this country go to these places and enjoy the sun and, and spend their time and that's what they like doing, that's fine. And I don't really get, I don't get a sense of him, you know, pointing a finger and saying, oh, well, you know, what, what he's doing is somehow superior to them. He's just, he's just reflecting a different part of, he's reflecting his experience and sometimes it's in contrast to, to how these expats are living or how you know people going on holiday there. But that's fine, you know, it's all part of people's lives and, and how they choose to spend their, their leisure time, I guess. And and one of the among the many highlights of the book is the way it explains how Benidorm developed from, from like a small town into this tourist mm-hmm. metropolis. And it's absolutely it is fascinating that story that story itself. 
So everything passes, everything remains a recommendation from Martin Gregg. And I'm guessing that the, the Gregg family, when the lockdown eases, will be heading to Cuenca at some point in the future. No. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Just the, the last thing on, on Christmas break, I really found out the political stuff really interesting and dating right back to the, the Spanish Civil War and the, you know, the, the Franco dictatorship and the, the legacy that that continues to have in, in current politics and the rise of the, the far right in, in Spain and stuff like that. And, and then he relates that into Scotland situation. And it's really interesting because he talks about, well, actually, in his quote here, he says, all these people that he speaks to are friends and colleagues. They are thoughtful, informed, and well-intentioned, but arrive at very different versions, not only of the present situation, but of the facts, single inverted commas, the facts of the past. And it's this idea of everyone has their own perspective, and it's built on very, very personal you know, aspects of their life. And it's interesting when, when he's encountered with people that he likes and respects but have different political opinions to him and it's quite challenging to him it's quite challenging to the reader but I think it's really important because public discourse these days is so polarized you know people are, are caught in these little kind of we're all in these little ideological bubbles I guess you know and it's like well this is my worldview and and you know you point at them over there and and, and this breaks through a lot of that stuff because it defines the quite complex truths and the many shades of grey that exist for why, how and why people hold the political views that they do. And he acknowledges that. And I think that's a really, really important and subtle point that, that we all need to get our heads around, particularly in the, in the current political climate. The book that I've chosen for this podcast is a book that was recommended by another guest on the podcast, Neil Mackay, journalist and, and writer. And at the time he'd chosen... Bram Stoker's Dracula as his favourite book from childhood. So he read it when he was about 11. So I'm obviously considerably older, having just read it in the last month or so. And it's a book that I'd, I had it, I bought it earlier this year. You know, sometimes uh, you, you mentioned earlier on about you know, that comfort of rereading, but also I'm also very aware of lots of books that I know the book, I know the story, but I've never actually read particularly classics or the, the great canon of English literature. Dracula was one of those books I'd never actually read. I've never really watched any Dracula films either. But Neil spoke so passionately about it, so I thought, right, I'm going to pick it up and read it. And I, I absolutely, I loved the book, particularly the start of it, when Jonathan Hacker first goes to Transylvania and meets Count Dracula. And it's quite gripping. And I think it's the, obviously it's the skill of any novel. Once you're in that story, even though it's a story that you're familiar with now, I, I don't know what it would have been like for people reading it at the time. Is, is something completely new. You become engaged with him, you become engaged with Van Helsing and, and basically the, the vampire hunters that just get together to try and track down Dracula when he arrives in London to, to try and stop him getting more victims. The only thing I would say at the end of it, because I, I was so, they, they basically chase him back to Transylvania and the ending, I, I, I'm not sure if whether cinematically I was expecting this big confrontation where there, I, there was like a kind of a fight between good and evil it doesn't quite good triumphs, but it, it's not quite in the way that I, I thought it would be. But it's a book that, you know, I think was written in the late 19th century. It always amazes me when I read books for so long ago, how engaged I've, I've become in them. So this year I've read, at the start of the year, I read the first book of Don Quixote, which is just an extraordinary experience. I've read Voltaire's Candide. I've read War and Peace as well. Books that, again, you know the names, but actually the stories, once you get into them, are so easily accessible. That's interesting. My question, it's funny when you get these books that are such a part of popular culture, but so few people have actually read the original text, and I'm the same with Dracula, I've never read it, but 
I mean, what is the style of writing like? Is it quite accessible? Does it feel quite modern in its, its way? Or is it a, a style that you have to click into um, to, to get back to that kind of period? It's written like a, a set of different journals. So it's different perspectives from the different characters of the journal of, say, Jonathan Hacker, who goes out. He's a, a lawyer, so he's engaged by Dracula to buy property in London. So he, he tells the original story and it's through his journals. And then his wife, you know, when they go back to London, so part of the story is in her journal, and then there's uh, Van Helsing. He narrates some of it as well. So it's almost as if Bram Stoker's trying to give that impression of piecing together all these different, because they, they were very much, they were writing down what they had experienced or what they had seen that day or what had happened. Uh, there was some early audio recordings as well. So it was almost like he's, he's almost curating or collating all the different information and piecing it together to tell you the story through the eyes of the different characters, which works really well, I, I think, because... It allows you to jump from character to character and get a different perspective, all the while bringing the, the story and Dracula is always hovering in the background. That's fascinating. So would you recommend that as a, as a Christmas read then? I would, just, I would just recommend it as, as a read. I'm not sure it's not, it's maybe not quite a Christmas carol, obviously. But, <laughs> um, but no, I was certainly, a, a, I was, I'm not too pleasantly surprised. I was just, I think, you know, that way sometimes when somebody talks about something with such passion and fervor that Neil Mackay did about Dracula and it kind of engages you and you think well I want to see if it matches up to what has what how he was selling it and certainly see the ending was kind of it wasn't slightly what I expected but uh, it's, it's certainly worth reading. It's funny because sometimes I think you need a push to go back to these classic texts and it sounds like Neil gave you his passion kind of gave you that push and I remember actually did a degree in Scottish literature back in the day and I realised at the end of the, the four years, I hadn't read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I was like, that's, that's absurd. Like, how, how have I not read this? And it's just one of these things you always, you kind of take it for granted, you know, because it's just, it's just there and it's, you're kind of aware of the narrative arc of it. But, you know, I, and I really had to push myself to the back and say, right, I've got to read this. Like, why, why have I not read this? And, you know, it was brilliant. It was great. And it's always rewarding when you do that. But there's, some, there's almost like a little psychological hurdle, isn't there, to actually get back into to going to these original texts. But I haven't done that a few times this year, dipping in and out of new books and old books. You know, it's certainly something, every time I've done it, I've found it quite rewarding. The fiction book that you've chosen for this podcast, Martin, is the latest novel by Robert Gobraith. I think it's called Troubled Blood, which is the, the latest in the Corner and Strike series. Yeah, that's right. I, I wanted to try and choose another book that had come out this year and that I'd actually read as well. And, um, you know, I've read the previous four, I think. And I, I you know, quite enjoyed them. They didn't blow me away, but I think they're, they're quite relatively easy reads, quite like the TV adaptations of them. And, you know, just popped up in my Kindle one day and I thought, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. It's <laughs> it's interesting. Now, first thing I would say is, like, if, if people are, are listening to this, and I know these podcasts are coming out in the lead up to Christmas and they're looking for maybe something to read over the festive period, then if they've read previous ones or even if they've not, I, I, would, I would recommend it. You know, I would say that it held my interest throughout, got to the end of it, quite enjoyed it. But I need to go back to my Amazon reviews again, Paul. Uh, and I, I found another classic three-star review. So this is by somebody called Gentoo on Amazon. And they say, to discover it was over 900 pages long made my heart sink. That's a lot of keeping the plot going. I don't buy books by the kilo. I want a good time. The book needs to be sharper for me. I'm sure there are many people who will revel in the journey. It's not badly written, but I'd have paid the same money for the book, The Other Side of an Assertive Sub-Editor. So that was a great line. 
I'd have paid the same money for the book, the other side of an assertive sub-editor. So I started looking into it, and the straight, the first straight book, these are all hardback paginations. So the, the first straight book was 464 pages. The second one, 464 pages. The third one was 512. The fourth one was 656. And the fifth one is 944. So, so this latest one is 944 pages. Now, you know, I can't do it a disservice because I did, I did get to the end of it. And I think she's a good enough writer that it holds your attention throughout. And I do think the characters are engaging. But I think a similar thing happened with the Harry Potter books. That they got bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger and bigger. And, you know, I ended up dropping out at some point. And I just think that this is this is unacceptable. <laughs> like, you know, I think there has to be some some kind of robust editorial process, no matter how big the writer is and you know how big that marketplace is. And so what is defining that decision? Is it because they that they don't want to have that conversation with the author and say, well, like 200 pages of this needs to go? Or is it a commercial decision that they say, well, if the pagination is so high, we can charge even more for this? I don't, I don't know what it is, but I, I just don't think that it's good enough. And I actually think in some ways it does the author a disservice because I think you have to save authors from themselves at times. And I, I speak as somebody who's writ, written books myself and you through the editorial process, which I, uh, I found brutal at times. But I do think that, you know, that there has to be some kind of intervention, um, certainly in cases like this. Because that's why I wonder whether, when you told me about that, then... I haven't read any of the series, although I think The Cuckoo's Nest is the first one, so I quite like to go back and read the first one. But it did strike me that, like you mentioned, that that's what happened with the Harry Potter series, that as the book became more successful commercially and you know, J.K. Rowling became bigger, I wondered whether publishers were so vested in books commercially and how important they were for their business that nobody wanted to be the person to go back with the hard words or the harsh words to say, you know, as you say, maybe we need to cut this by a couple of hundred pages. And I wonder, now that she's, because obviously going into the crime books under a pseudonym was a different challenge for her. And as she's established them and become more successful, I wonder if the same things happened. And interestingly, it, it kind of reminded me a bit of Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies with Helena Mantel. And then The Mirror and the Light, which came out, obviously it's tying up the trilogy. So maybe that's the reason why it was much longer than the other two. But I remember reading some, reviews at the time and again they kind of made a similar point to what you did is that had the books become so successful had she become so successful almost as a franchise that nobody wanted to say you know it'd just be better if it just tightened a wee bit or a big bit i don't know where it comes from i don't know if it's because it's difficult to have that conversation with the author in this case whether she would be resistant to it and she's certainly powerful enough that she could resist those type of, of interventions from an editorial standpoint but being a publisher myself my suspicion would be that it's a commercial stance to take to say, well, if this book is 944 pages, then we can charge another five on top of it. And if you charge another five on top of a, a Robert Galbraith book, that's serious money. You know, you, you know, you're going to generate hundreds of thousands of pounds more potentially in profit. So, look, you know, as where it is, I still enjoyed it. I would still recommend it for people who are interested in the series, but putting my publisher hat on, putting my editor's hat on, there was seven or eight occasions in the book where I just thought, well, this whole section could just be ripped out and you would not bat an eyelid. I wonder as well, you know, the nature of crime novels is that you, and going, going back to the, the guy who put the review on, on Amazon, that you're wanting something, obviously you want something that's a substantial read, but you want the thing to move along. You don't want to feel like 900 pages 
I think of any book can just at first glance be quite intimidating. So you would think you're never going to sustain a pace of a, a crime novel through 900 pages because there must be points where it must come across as almost padding. Yeah, I mean, there was, I looked at the, in my bookshelf last night, I looked at an Ag- Agatha Christie, Orient Express, and, you know, the, the work count is pretty tight on that. You know, it's, it's a relatively modest length of book, and, and it's, you know, it's a classic of crime fiction. There's quite a, an impressive cast of characters, but there's lots of explorations of their backstories, and you, you keep asking yourself, is this justified? You can understand it in some ways with regards to the two main characters, but even then, I think that's been over-egged because there's a big sort of will-they-won't-they thing between Strike and his assistant or his partner, as she is in, in, in this book. And, you know, you th- that starts to get a bit tedious, that will-they-won't-they thing, you know, and, and you think, well, you know, you, you've got to do something more with this. You've got to kill it or, you know, something's got to happen here because, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not going to do another novel in this type of setup. In terms of, you mentioned you hadn't read as much this year as you had in previous years. Do you know what you're going to be reading next now that you've, you mentioned you've just finished Crystal? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've usually got a, a slate of things to read, actually, but I'm kind of struggling a wee bit, actually. I don't know. Um, I've got Don Quixote sitting there. Um, my wife bought me a beautiful edition of that for my, my, my birthday, so I would like to read that over the festive holidays. But I don't, I don't have, like, a a big reading list at the moment so you know, all recommendations are mo- most welcome oh if you just listen every day to the, the 12 days of book missing <laughs> it, you, you'll get you'll get plenty of recommendations uh, but martin is, is always uh, it's always great to talk to you uh, about books and thanks for your your recommendations on the 12 days of book miss that's been a pleasure thanks for having me again paul Thanks for listening to the 12 Days of Bookness, a special Read All About It podcast series that is so special it even has its own theme tune. You can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review which will help other book lovers find us. And I hope you can join me, Paul Cuddy, on the next episode. In the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.